Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Chorley, bringing you the best of my Times Radio show. You can listen live on your radio 10 till 1, Monday to Friday, but uh, several of you have been in touch to say you can't listen on the radio live every day because you have to go back to work, which is quite annoying. Uh, but at least you can catch up on the podcast. We always bring you the columnist panel and our big thing. And today's big thing, for the last time in 2021, we convened the Times Radio Focus Group, a panel of swing voters, telling us what they think about the government's handling of coronavirus, the migrant crisis, and what would they buy Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer for Christmas? That's coming up in just a moment. But first, as our columnist panel, and on Tuesday, it must be... Meet the Cerberus of columnists. The Janus of journalism. And the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. Finkelvich with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time where we always get to speak to Finkelvich. It's Daniel Finkelstein. Good morning, Danny. Good morning. And David Aronovich. Good morning, David. Good morning. Edwin Poots. <laughs> Explain. So we have been talking about uh, just terrific resignations because the Swedish Prime Minister got the job, resigned, and now is back. So your offering is done, David. Is Edwin Poots? Uh, Edwin Poots spends all his time getting, helping to get Arlene Foster out. Um, uh, uh, then gets to be the leader of the Democratic Unionist Party, which you essentially do by getting, by if you can win by 17 votes to 18, because that's the kind of size of electorate uh, that they have of their uh, of their MPs and members of the Assembly and so on. Uh, and then within days has gone because they've not approved one of his appointments. Um, uh, and uh, it, you, you do kind of think... What was all that for? I mean, hadn't he kind of squared them? It wasn't as if there was very many of them. He had to convince uh, and so on. And so I think, uh, I mean, I know it's very difficult to interest people in uh, Britain about what happens in in Northern Ireland and so on. But I do think Edwin Poots is a kind of top candidate here. And also there's the so name. There's, there's, there, there was Diane James, who was the UKIP leader for, was it 11 days, 18 days, something like that. But who's Pat Glass? Pat Glass was appointed Shadow Education Secretary by Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, put out a statement saying she was thrilled, was the job she'd always wanted, and two days later resigned uh, because she couldn't, <laughs> she, couldn't, uh, she couldn't face it anymore. Uh, Danny, have you got a resignation story to share with the class? Oh, well, I, I do think basically most people's resignations consist of appointing me to work for them. Because uh, I mean, <laughs> I, mean, I, mean, I think I've been in the room for about certainly two people, David Owen and Michael Howard, re- signing their resignation letter. I've certainly uh, obviously worked for John Major and for William Higgs. I've been involved in my fair share, worked with Theresa May. I've certainly uh, engaged in a fair, my fair share of uh, resignation uh, resignation fiascos. 
And if you, because you're, you're a wordsmith, I know you've written speeches for politicians, Daddy. Have you been involved in the writing of resignation letters, Daddy? No, I've never, actually, I've never done that. So I'm not, I've not been the, uh, the Hamilton to George Washington, no. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I usually, I usually cause resignations <laughs> rather than, uh, rather than be uh, drafted into writing. them. That's the one well, genre of speech, actually, I've never been involved with. Oh, well, once you have done, I think the musical based on the life of times of Daniel Finkelstein is definitely that's that's one that's going to take Broadway by storm. Uh, right, but on the subject of well, sort of connected reshuffles, um, uh, the only actual resignation we got yesterday was Cat Smith, who said she was very sad to be leaving, despite the fact that Keir Starmer said she could stay. Um, what uh, what have you made of the reshuffle, uh, Danny? Look, I think I think he his previous shadow cabinet, the shadow cabinet he chose first, was deliberately chosen to reveal absolutely nothing about what he wanted to do with the Labour Party because he hadn't decided yet. And clearly now he has decided. And that's the difference between this shadow cabinet and the one that he selected to begin with. It's the reason why he's got somewhat more uh, impressive characters or certainly more experienced characters uh, with a more defined political profile. Some people, of course, who were on the left of him will say that's not what he promised to do in the leadership election and they'll be furious and I, they'll feel led on and I think there's actually, a re, you know, I can see why they would argue that. Uh, others, and I would certainly count myself among those, would say well, yes, that may be true, but you're now on a path that's more likely to yield you power. So um, uh, uh, while it won't do so by itself, I thought it was a step in the right direction, basically. Um, David, what does it tell us about the state of the Labour Party and their hopes of success that the Great White Hope is someone elected in 1997, was a minister in the Blair and Brown governments, uh, and has already done the job of Shadow Home Secretary up against uh, Theresa May. Is Yvette Cooper uh, the person to save the Labour Party? Well, what it tells you is that Labour have been out of power for 11 years. So the number of people who've held ministerial office and are also of, uh, you know, teenagers or just above is pretty small. Um, and that can be a problem for, party, uh, for parties. I mean, when the Conservatives came back in uh, 2010, it had been some time. And so there were a couple of grizzled, old kind of grizzled faces around who, who are kind of necessary, really, because that experience is valuable. The other thing is, Yvette Cooper's a very clever person. I mean, there's no doubt about it. I don't always agree with her, but she is a very clever person, very experienced. She knows uh, how to uh, uh, how ministerial office works and so on. And that's pretty valuable. If you're one of the things that you're trying to suggest to people is that you would be competent in government when asking them to put you in government for the first time for a very long time. I and mean, it, it, it will be tried to be made an issue at the next election that Labour doesn't have very many experienced people in government. And this is would be one kind of way of retorting. But the more significant things is the younger, what you might, I mean, there is no such thing as a kind of Blairite wing of the Labour Party anymore. It's, 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 it's kind of irritating thing because all kinds of things have moved on uh, significantly. Um, but those people who might be in inclined to turn to Tony Blair for useful advice on how to run a political party and what to be saying in the current situation seem to have got quite considerable leg up in these uh, in yeah. these appointments and there are quite a few of them there he he picked that's the point david isn't it he 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 wasn't sure what he should do as leader of the party. He definitely indicated to the left that that was the direction he was going to go. Uh, that has always been, his position as the party has always been just slightly to the left of Ed Miliband. And what he's done now is move slightly to the right of Ed Miliband. Whether that's going to be enough um, it, it isn't, it isn't clear at all. Um, whether he'll see it through and, you know, there are questions, I think, sometimes with Yvette Cooper over whether, over how sort of bold she's willing to be as, as the Brexit, you know, I thought as the Brexit vote showed, she couldn't really decide what she thought in the end. Um, so there are questions over it, like there are with any group of people, but it's a more, it's, it's a, it's a more impressive group in terms of experience and it's certainly picking in terms of direction. I suppose the interesting question is uh, Yvette Cooper can only be as bold as the leader necessarily allows her to be. And that's true of the, you know, there's certainly slightly better known people who are better on the telly is fine. But if the leader doesn't want to say anything bold about migration or <laughs> the economy or hospitals or schools, then, then they're in the same problem. And I suppose the question is, is this all part of a great plan by Keir Starmer to uh, nudge to the left of Ed Miliband in order to get elected as leader 
during the course of this parliament nudged the right and then that's the path he thinks is the path to victory? Or is it that he doesn't really think anything about anything, he's tried one and now he's trying the other? You know, the mistake I made with Tony Blair right at the beginning in terms of analysis was that I didn't think he meant it. And gradually, over the period uh, of his leadership, I realised he did, that his politics were quite close to the centre, um, and he did mean it. Uh, and the thing about Keir Starmer is I'm not, I don't really understand what his politics are. He's, you know, I read a lot about him and it's it's very unrevealing about where he stands on anything um so whether this is a tactical maneuver if it is i don't think it'll work or the revelation to himself and to others of where he of who he is and what he intends to do um you know well we'll see i suppose that but in that case it's a sort of mirror opposite david of, of the tony blair problem thinking that he didn't mean it but he did there's a risk here that people think Keir Starmer does mean it and he doesn't or, or he doesn't know what it is. I'm always reminded. Was it was it Patton who said that uh, a commander can go in as a bastard and prove that he's a nice guy, but he can't do it the other way around. You can't do. You can't go in as a nice guy and prove that you're a bastard and so on. And so I, I can't think a kind of similar question uh, sits here. Um, uh, Tony Blair went in saying I'm convinced of this uh, and turned out to be convinced of it. Um, uh, Keir Starmer's going in and saying I'm not totally sure. I kind of I'm slightly on the fence here, um, and I think we should take him seriously. <laughs> <laughs> when he says that i mean i think i think the part of the problem that he has really is that politics in uh, just not just nationally but internationally have been so turbulent recently and the questions which if you like the world face uh pandemic out to climate change and sound uh, you know if we talk about let's say migration patterns as a huge big issue for for, for the world which which governments fail to live up to but which you can see kind of burgeoning that's the kind of that's the kind of new world with with which the next sets of prime ministers and leaders are going to have to contend and i think it is true to say that they are quite plastic at the moment about how they're going to deal in detail with some of these things and i think he i think he is keeping some of his power dry he's shown you a direction of travel there's no way away from corbynism that's clear um, what exactly it's towards uh, in terms of dealing with those huge, big things, I think is much less clear. And there's a very interesting intervention by, actually by the Tony Blair Foundation within the last couple of weeks to try and lay out some of the constituent parts of what that might be. And, and as you would expect from the Tony Blair Foundation, it's quite a lot of it is quite technocratic, the new technologies, et cetera, which are going to come forward and uh, and transform bits of uh, uh, of the world for us and taking advantage of those. It's that, but it's going to be in that kind of area that he's going to try and score. I suppose, that, yeah, it goes, it's the old question of, is he keeping his powder dry or has he got no powder? No, no one ever keeps their the... powder dry, by the way. That's that, that one of the things... <laughs> no, exactly. One of the things we always used to... Gordon Brown, who was always going to reveal the things that he was going to do, the new things he was going to do when he became Prime Minister. And that I couldn't see what it was that Tony Blair was stopping him from doing. And I also couldn't see that there would be anything that Gordon Brown could have done that he would have kept back on the off chance that 10 years after he became Chancellor, he'd become Prime Minister and they'd want to have something new to say. Uh, people don't keep their powder dry. If he had some powder, he'd have, like, definitely used it. And, and the other thing, Danny, was, I was just thinking of something you said uh, uh, when we've spoken before, about how if you're faced with something and you don't know what to do, just do what you think is the right thing. That actually there have been so many things where, why does a kid Starmer just actually say yeah. what he thinks about something? Um, and the slight, the sort of the timidity of, oh, I know that might upset the red wall or it might upset this and that and that. And as a result, you don't upset anyone, but you don't excite yeah. anyone either. Well, the piece of a political advice, although admittedly, of course, you just heard me say before that it led to everyone having to resign. But the political advice that I'm fondest of... <laughs> the political advice I'm fondest of giving to, to politicians is let's start with you deciding what you think is is right and what the true answer is to that question then then we can consider whether there are any reasons why then you lie. can't say or do that <laughs> uh no we can we can then consider why there may be big political reasons why you can't say or do that but at least we'll know at the beginning what you really think and what the truth is uh and that's usually a good a good starting place for any kind of political advice 
Uh, just and did they quickly, take your just, advice, Dan? <laughs> yeah, how did that lead to a, to a resignation? <laughs> and, uh, I, 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 obviously, that, there, there are confidentialities I can't go into. Uh, the, the, I can't speak about individual cases. Isn't that the formula you're supposed to use? <laughs> <laughs> All right, then, but just, just briefly then, on the, on the question of like, doing the right thing and having to make a judgment, uh, Boris Johnson is now in the unusual position of being accused of massively overreacting in the face of, uh, of coronavirus. Uh, the question, uh, David, of, of what do you do when you don't know, but you've got to do or decide something? You know, one of the things that, that, that I tweeted out, I don't, I, I'm not going to talk about too much about what I tweeted out, but I said one of the things that's going to be very interesting over the course of the next days is listening to broadcasters find different ways of asking scientists questions which, to which the answer will be, we don't know, um, over Omicron. Uh, and that's exactly why we've had some uh, fantastic examples uh, this morning. We don't yet know what the properties of Omicron are and therefore the problems that they will give rise to, or if indeed they will give rise to additional problems. So or what you've got to do under these circumstances is somehow prepare for the fact that it might be bad without actually saying that it will be bad, because that might turn out to be wrong, which is equally kind of problematic. And this is the strange thing, uh, because I am not a fan of Boris Johnson, but it does strike me that by and large, the government has got that balancing act right as of this moment. There we are. There we are. It's not often that this, this, this um, section concludes with uh, Boris Johnson's bang on. Uh, da- uh, I'll finish with your thoughts, Danny. Yeah, you, what you have to do is you have to look at the probabilities in any circumstances and multiply it by the consequences, right? And, and that's all you can do. But the problem with these things is even those things are extremely difficult to tell. So listening to Sajid Javid uh, yesterday, uh, he was attacked from both sides. You're not doing enough. You're doing too much. That doesn't mean what he's doing is right. Everyone always says that means he's doing, you know, he must be doing it just right because both sides are attacking him. It could mean that both sides are right and he's wrong. But I think, um, basically, they that was... You know, if I'd have been in that position, I think that's the choice I would have made, given the information that I have. Yeah, there's a very good... But just on the thing that you were saying, there was a very good piece written really early on in the pandemic, sort of in the March, April time last year. David Gork, the former cabinet minister, I think wrote a piece of Conservative Home. We said, the trouble with news is it's not biased. Uh, the only thing it's biased towards is the new... And figures can't be flat, <laughs> and the amount of information we uh, it, uh, the amount of information we have can't be the same. It's got to be going up or down, and therefore we can report on it. Uh, just saying, no, nothing today uh, is not is not enough for the news. Not enough for the news. I know it's like it's like people who who, who continuously kind of tweet out or report single polls, uh, and it kind of and it does kind of for, for a veteran like me, it does drive me round the bend. You know, because you'll have a different poll next week. Um, it's in the run of polls that you might see developments and so on. So doing this is, but it's new. That's the thing. Yeah. It's the thing that we've got. Uh, and it, so it trumps anything that's old, even if the thing that's old is truer than the thing that's new. Daniel Finkelstein and David Iwanovich there. And of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, Mr. Focus Group. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for the last time this year, the Times Radio Focus Group. Every month on Times Radio, we convene the focus group in association with the global communications firm Ketz CNC to bring you exactly what political parties, the Conservative Party, the Labour Party, Number 10, they all use focus groups as well as opinion policy to bring you exactly what they are being told. Uh, as ever, former Number 10 pollster James Johnson was in the seat for this month's session. And James joins me now. Hi, James. Morning. Uh, nice to have you with us. Now, uh, legally, we are obliged to state exactly the purpose of a focus group. So explain to listeners so that um, they don't message in and say, oh, it's, does, it's not the same as a poll. What is the value of a focus group uh, and why is it different to a, a standard opinion poll? So it's very much not intended to do the purpose of a poll. A poll is there to survey lots of people and it's sampled to be nationally representative of the population. A focus group is a much smaller number of people. It's not intended to be representative. But instead, it's really about diving into why people say what they say in polls. So it's a group of six to eight people. Um, we've recruited them in this basis uh, from uh, people who are undecided about how they vote at the next election, but voted Labour or Conservative last time. Um, and really, it's about getting under the skin of why, they're, why they think the things that they're thinking. So what we're saying is, is that there's only one focus group. This is not the definitive view of Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer amongst the great British public. Um, but it does give you a sense of the kind of conversations they're having and the kind of way they're approaching uh, politics and the main players in politics today. And the fact we've been doing this, what, for 18 months now, since Times Radio launched uh, in June last year. So we've built up a sort of body of, you know, you don't look at this snapshot, look at the trend. You can, in fact, you can go back and listen to them on, on the Redbox podcast. All of them are there. But it sort of gives you a picture of, oh, that's interesting. That's landing. That isn't. This is this is what uh, voters are picking up. Just where where were these voters from, uh, James? Just so people get a sort of slight sense of uh, they were all recruited by an independent market research company. We don't go out and find them. But where were they from? Yeah, so we talked to people this time around from uh, Boston, uh, Walsall uh, and Reading. So a bit of a mix of um, places uh, where the Conservatives um, made progress at the election last, uh, in 2019, um, but also some of those sort of, uh, that, that's down in Reading, you know, slightly more sort of south, uh, slightly different demographics. So good mix. A nice mix. And as ever, you kicked off with a fairly standard, straightforward question, just to get the mood of the group. How is the government doing? Uh, I'm not exactly convinced they're doing a great job. There's things that should be happening that aren't. You know, I've, I've got issues around, personally, I've got issues around, you know, um, what seems to be the exploitation of the COVID situation, where, you know, people are making money. Friends of uh, certain MPs and even the Prime Minister are making money where, you know, really we should be... To get his help working together to get this kind of stuff sorted. I think they could be doing a lot more personally. Um, I think now with the new variant that's coming and the concerns that we've got. Um, yeah, I don't think they're doing great. Um, from the start, I probably was one of the first people that was kind of saying, um, why haven't we locked our borders? Why are people still roaming? Um, and that was at the very start of it all. Um, well, they're struggling. You know, they're uh, they're up against really poor opposition at the moment so I think they're taking their time they're getting the the dirty washing out you know they're managing to, to make themselves look a bit sleazy which is pathetic um they're politicking with the French yeah, it's, it's all, all a bit of a mess well I, I think they're very tough because of the Covid I mean when, when Boris came in it was all about Brexit but now the Covid's taken over uh, I think they're very really tough on that I do think they've had it tough and they've done the best they can with what they've got. But I think the problem is that they have somebody else, somebody else, I think Vanessa, they've um, not made decisions quickly enough. And I think the, the public are, are losing trust in them. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, it's been said a couple of times, I think it's been probably the most challenging two, two years. I mean, certainly I can ever remember. So there we are, James. A, a lot of similar themes that we often pick up in the focus group dealt a tough hand, but perhaps more critical uh, than previous groups we've had. 
Yeah, I think this is one of the more negative ones we've had uh, in terms of their views of the government. Um, we often get a lot of benefit of the doubt. You know, they're up against a tough situation. It's unprecedented. You heard that come through a little bit there, but it wasn't the first thing that people came to. And I think that really does reflect where the polls have moved since we last did um, the Times Radio focus group. Over the last month, the Conservative vote share has gone down. The Labour vote share has crept up a bit. Um, so I think we are seeing uh, really the result of a few of these different events, whether it's uh, sleaze, which you heard mentioned there, <clears throat> whether it's uh, the migrant crossings, uh, whether it's a general sense um, of Boris Johnson not really quite being the leader they thought uh, he was, or, or certainly the leader they thought they elected in 2019. So a few doubts coming through. And what was really interesting is that these doubts that they were having, they were feeding into a view that does this government really follow through? Does it really get things done? Is it really strong? And that is the key thing that these voters are looking for from their politicians. And really, in this focus group, for the first time really in about 12 months, voters are really starting to doubt that about the current government. So you asked a really interesting question, because obviously, you, you know, sometimes we view politics as a bit of a seesaw. If the, one part, if the Tories are down, then Labour are up and vice versa. But you asked them... Uh, who would who would be handling this this whole situation any better? It's a really interesting uh, response. Let's take a listen. We're stuck with people that are playing politics, we're, we're, rather than trying to do what's best for their country and serve their country, which is what they should be doing. Obviously, they've got a bit of a free pass because of COVID. You know, everybody's several people on here have said that they're happy to give them a. You know, it's been difficult, and of course, it's been difficult, and I've I, no doubt. You know, could you imagine Jeremy Corbyn looking after COVID? He'd have pardoned the virus and gone to a special reception for its death. I mean, I, I would say that starting off, that you know, it was difficult. Nobody knew what COVID was when it came. It was out of the blue and everybody, you know, it was unexpected. But ultimately, when you've got people of the Conservative Party breaking social distancing rules, breaking rules that they're setting out for the public, automatically people are going to lose trust in that. I agree with Prima. Yeah, I agree too. I feel like it's getting to a point now where I'm thinking even when we do vote for one of them, are they even going to follow through with the promises that they make us? It's really interesting, James, that that sort of is, it's I suppose it's partly where we are. It's midterm. We've moved from the promise to the delivery. And, you know, so your expectations then of leaders changes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and again, it comes to that sort of following through thing you heard somebody say there you know this sense of does a government deliver what it actually does they're doubting that at the moment and um, that's sort of okay from a government perspective as you say this is midterm um we often see this trend happen uh, in the middle of government terms so you know those listening who are who, who perhaps are very uh, keen to get the conservatives out shouldn't get too excited um but if this narrative can you know continues and, and really does lead up to an election itself then you could you could certainly see that being quite a different mood um, 2019. Have to say, really enjoyed the chap saying that Corbyn would have pardoned the virus <laughs> and attended the reception. <laughs> that was... <laughs> but, and, it, and, it's, and it's telling that in two ways. One is is that they're not immediately jumping over to uh, Labour or someone else in terms of who might do a better job. And secondly, Corbyn is still haunting views of the Labour Party and it comes up in this focus group, it comes up in others. You know, people really do still associate the Labour Party with Corbyn and that's clearly a problem for Keir Starmer. Yeah, Corbyn's brand recognition is amazing uh, in a way that I'm not sure, you know, Michael Howard's was by 2010. Um, uh, but then I suppose also that that's what happens when you fight two general elections that, you know, even though he lost yeah. them, uh, you, it does mean that, you, you know, your, your cut through is is really high. But that was in a conversation about <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn pardoning coronavirus and we talked quite a lot with them about how concerned they were about the new variant and that sort of thing um and on this particular question of of masks there's been lots of debate about whether or not the public will will respond to the instruction of masks is everyone weary of it uh, sometimes it's just good to get it from the horse's mouth so this is what the group had to say about the prospect of mask wearing coming back in england when the restrictions were in and it was man mandatory to do so i did um, but I've gradually got out of the habit of doing so. I still have one on me all the time. But if it comes that I need to wear one, well, I will wear one from tomorrow. And I'd say we're probably 50-50. Um, when uh, you go into a shop, you go somewhere where they say, please wear a mask, we would wear it. So I think it's kind of if we're going somewhere where they ask or they're quite prescriptive on wearing one, we would wear it. 
if I'm just going to the shops now. Uh, so yeah, I'll I'll wear a mask again from tomorrow if that's what if that's what they say. Yeah, you know, much the same as the others. You know, when we're advised to wear a mask, we put the mask on. I don't have any problem. I'm not awkward about it. Prefer not to. Um, and and equally, you know, if you're in an environment where nobody else is wearing one, it's partly pointless. And football, gym, places like that, no one's wearing masks. And they're probably higher risk places, I would have thought. Now, James, I thought this was gave us a really interesting insight into the psyche of the British public. Even though we might know that we should wear a mask, if other people aren't wearing them, we, we don't want to be like the big square. But if we're told to, then we'll do it. Yeah, and I think what we're seeing there is a pattern that's really been true throughout the pandemic, that the public are quite willing to be led on COVID. And it works both ways. If people, if we bring in restrictions, people tend to follow them, uh, or at least sort of say they're going to follow them. Um, uh, and also, if the government lightens restrictions, people are, are quite happy to, for example, you know, take, take the mask off, as, as they said. I think it was an interesting sort of middle ground as well between some of the extremes that we might see on social media, between you know those who are sort of um, you know saying you know wear a mask all the time or making it political, um, versus those who are saying you know masks are a massive infringement on their freedom and they're never going to wear one ever again we actually saw a nice middle ground these aren't people out there who are particularly keen to wear them you know people were not particularly uh, uh excited about the idea they talked about them being a nuisance they talked about them being uncomfortable um but ultimately they did say well i'm not going to be arrogant um literally that was one of the quotes um and uh, gonna, gonna gonna put it on so a little bit different to earlier in the pandemic that is not necessarily informed by a huge sense of fear um but it is informed by well we should probably do the right thing shouldn't we and I suppose that is that the I suppose it's a slight counter to the comments last week by Chris Whitty, where he said he was concerned uh, by the the patience of the British public. And we mustn't forget that when we first went into lockdown last year, we were told it was going to be for three weeks. Mm, and what you know, and, and, and actually the compliance is much higher than they expected. But but right now, if Downing Street is doing these these focus groups and trying to work out where to land these sort of public health messages, Actually, there's still a residual willingness to, well, if that's the right thing to do and everyone else is doing it, then I'll go along with it. There is. I mean, it is a mixed, it's a mixed climate of opinion. Um, it's not quite as straightforward as it's been in the past. Um, and I think, but clearly the new variant is do, has sort of um, made people uh, uh, slightly sort of change their mind. In fact, somebody said it, it, the new variant, it hasn't changed my behaviour, but it's focused my mind back onto COVID. And I think that shows a little bit of the change that's happened in the last in the last week or so with 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 the new variant but it is a, it is a bit more of a of a, of a mixed um sort of sort of climate of opinion um and i think that the other thing to say is that these are very light touch measures the government has brought in in terms of these people we've seen in polls as well that around eight out of ten people support masks coming back indoors um this was not a particularly hard one to get through if the government had to look at more stringent restrictions, I think we may see a bit more opposition amongst amongst even those voters we spoke to last night. OK, let's look at the other big political uh, story of the last few weeks and the migrant crisis. Also, we saw uh, last week uh, 27 people uh, sadly drowning in the channel trying to trying to reach Britain from France. But the small boats issue has been bubbling away uh, for a couple of years now. Uh, let's take a listen to what the group had to say about the, the migrant crisis. I think it's really sad, you know, that people people are fleeing for their lives, um, you know, and the, obviously there's not things in place to help people safely to arrive there, so they're taking them chances by, um, you know, making them journeys on dinghies, etc., I do agree with Carl, it's really sad and they must be really, really desperate. But I am going to be a bit controversial. I think we've just been so soft in the past and let everybody and anybody in. Um, and now that, of course, rules are being put in place, it, it's not going down very well. James, I thought this was really interesting. It sort of spoke to the the fact that politics and people are complicated. And on the one hand, people have a very human reaction to what happened in the channel last week, but they also have an instinctive political feeling of uh, wanting to get control of immigration. In the past, too many people have come to the UK um, and so on. And, and there's a real tension there. And, and But unlike spreadsheets, human beings do try sometimes to hold two views at once. 
Yeah, and it, it is it is a corrective to some of the sort of stereotypes about about these voters as being you know wildly anti-immigration, wildly bigoted. Um, it's not the case at all. Um, there is a sadness, but it's also accompanied by a concern about softness um, and a feeling that um, uh, uh, this uh, this sort of channel channel route has not been properly dealt with. Um, they were frustrated by um, a lack of action by the government. Um, they, a, few, a few people had actually noticed Boris Johnson's letter to Emmanuel Macron, um, uh, which someone described as Boris putting his foot in it. Um, so they're not particularly feeling like it's going well. Um, they are concerned by it, but they're also aware of the, the human angle too. The interesting thing about it is, is that there's clearly a bit of an opening for a party who really did go quite strongly on the, on the migrant crisis. It was a real concern of these voters, and they didn't feel that the Conservatives or Labour had a solution to it. Do you think that there's a path through this where the government could could be actually much more generous in terms of offering to take uh, refugees, combined with a sort of harder line uh, it, it doesn't seem like it needs to be an either or. You could be in a situation where you say, well, we, t- we would take tens of thousands more people through a legal route, but we will have control of that while being much harder line on those coming illegally. Yeah, the, the public certainly make a big uh, distinction between legal and, and, it, and illegal. Um, and they also make a big distinction between migrants and refugees. Um, so I think, you know, any narrative that uh, really sort of, you know, put refugees at the fore and also focused on tackling, da- tackling illegal immigration uh, clearly, you know, may well have permission. The problem is, you know, in political terms, and I'm sure this is what, uh, what number ten and the Labour Party are hearing in their focus groups, um, is that there is a lot of concern about numbers. Um, and if you look at the numbers over the last year in terms of channel crossing, it's, it's not it's not particularly surprising. They are very high numbers, and those are, those have cut through to the public. Um, so I think, uh, although that may be true in theory that there is a way of squaring the circle, I think it would depend on how high those numbers were in terms of how politically palatable it was. And I think that both parties will be keeping an eye on, is there some sort of force on the right that could weaponise this issue? Um, Because that would be bad news for the Conservatives. That's what gets all the coverage. But actually, it'd be really bad news for Labour as well, because it would sever the link that they've made with these voters who just left them in 2019, who they could win back. If they go off and vote for some other new Farage-style party, that link is broken. And that's really bad news for Labour as well as the Tories. Uh, it's interesting, actually, just as we were speaking, uh, YouGov have released some polling saying 80% of Britons now think the government is handling the issue of immigration in the UK badly. 80%, that's almost uh, doubled uh, since, uh, when is that? Uh, early early last year, early last year. It's really interesting. Um, James, uh, we'll uh, stick with you uh, as we work our way through the focus group. It's James Johnson, former Downing Street uh, pollster. We work our way through the Times Radio focus group in association with Kex CNC. Up next... What do they make of Labour's shadow cabinet? It's well worth sticking uh, with us for that. It's Matt Shirley on Times Radio in association with Mastercard Strive, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from Mastercard, empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Yeah, morning. Nice to have you with us. We're doing the Times Radio Focus Group, where we've assembled a panel of swing voters from Boston, Warsaw and Reading. James Johnson, former Danish Street pollster, uh, is still with us and he was in the chair for the uh, debate last night. James, let's turn our attention now to Boris Johnson. And like we said, in the past, we've had lots of benefit of the doubt. But let's take a listen, because I think we agreed afterwards it was the most critical group uh, of Boris Johnson we, we've, we've really had. So let's take a listen to what they had to say. I think having walked everybody through Britain, I think one of the things that I, I find personally difficult was him being the front man on the Brexit. And then sort of as soon as it all went through, he disappeared. He seemed to go into the background. I must be honest, when I look at my TV and I say this person is running our country, he would be the last person I'd point at. At the end of the day, he's just a puppet, isn't he? Because... I, I do know that there's people above him and he probably does get told half the time what he can and can't say. So Yeah, I, I mean, when he first came in, I was a bit taken back. I, I never really expected, I never took him seriously. Um, and then as time's gone on, I just I've really just found myself just disliking him even more. Yeah, I think uh, with Cameron, uh, prior to Boris, Cameron was very, very professional in my eyes. And obviously, uh, he never expected the vote to go wrong in the EU 
But I think we've gone from someone who's very professional and who wouldn't be intimidated by other uh, leaders to someone who's uh, he wants to be a bit of a jack the lad, you know. And that's what a lot of people are getting. It's like last week. It, he's so much a cowboy. Uh, last week he was doing like a press conference and he lost all his notes and he had them all mixed up and you know that's all about preparation if you don't get your preparation right you don't get things right so if he's doing that on a press conference how's he treating this country ah oh, Peppa Pig world gets cut through uh, James but it's interesting um, I think the, uh, Peppa Pig came up a bit later, but actually, the, what the, the, the they're smart voters. They 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 cut through to this. What does it mean? Does it matter? He talked about Peppa Pig. No. What does it tell us about it, the fact he's on top of uh, things or not? Actually, quite a lot. Yeah, and there are a few other uh, frustrations coming through in terms of uh, sort of just how much sort of a grip he had on things, um, uh, as well as professionalism. What was really interesting and, and probably the most worrying thing, if I were in. Uh, number 10 doing these focus groups uh, for Boris Johnson would be that um, it's not just a bit of frustration about his professionalism, which he's always had an element of, but they're linking that to a sense of how strong he is and what he's able to sort of get done and how decisive he is. And those things are important because they are some of the real brand strengths that Boris Johnson had in the 2019 election and that really helped him um, get secure such a large victory. Um, voters believed he was... Uh, the guy who was going to, well, bash through the sort of the brick wall in, in the JCB and, and get Brexit done. They believed he was the, the man who had, even if he was a bit uh, offensive every now and then, even if he was a little bit of a joker every now and then, he was the guy who wouldn't suffer fools gladly and would get things done. That seems to be shifting. Um, and uh, they're now seeing someone who's a bit more indecisive, a bit more lacking in action, a bit less strong. And even as you heard one lady say there, sort of controlled by people above him, he's, he's, a, he's a puppet. Now, we heard a little bit of that this time last year with you know, Dominic Cummings and so on. Yes. So we have been yeah, here yeah, before, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not great news. OK, no, that's, uh, that's the criticism of, uh, of Boris Johnson. Now, while we were doing this, was it sort of five, six, six o'clock last night, um, the, the Labour reshuffle was underway, in inverted commas. Uh, we got the details of it after the group uh, broke up. Um, but you asked them, in the midst of it all, about uh, Keir Starmer's top team. Let's take a listen. Who else is in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet? Can we name anyone else in, in the shadow cabinet? Angela Rayner. Anyone else? I've not really taken notice for quite a while, you know, with the news and stuff. Some anyone else in anyone else in the shadow cabinet we can name? Vanessa Prima. No, I'm not. I've not really taken much notice to anybody else. No, sorry, I don't know. What does that make us? What do we think about that then? Tells you all you need to know. There we are, James. Uh, uh, yeah, I swear that that was in no way edited, uh, or that is exactly how it played out. Uh, so what What should Ke maybe Keir Starmer say? Well, look, I've got um, Yvette Cooper now. It's all changed. Yeah, look, I think that this is a reflection of probably partly why Keir Starmer has made the moves uh, that he's made. And, and, and clearly he's now got Yvette Cooper and David Lammy. Um, people who are um, a bit more visible um, and uh, have a bit of uh, well spark about them, really, that the public may well pick up on. I mean, it is worth, you know, in fairness to Keir Starmer, it is worth saying that I think people would have also struggled to name anyone beyond David Cameron and George Osborne in the Shadow Cabinet in 2010, for example, or 2009. Um, uh, but it I does don't know, speak William, to a... William Hague and Ken Clark would have probably... Oh, maybe, maybe. I, I mean, people would have known they were in the Conservative Party, but I'm not sure they would have necessarily known yeah, they, were yeah, in the, yeah. they were in the top team. I mean, but look, I mean, it does obviously speak to the fact that there's not sort of big hitters uh, uh, in the Labour Party that people can can name, um, and that does uh, create some some concern for people, no doubt. Especially because people have seen a lot more of other figures on the government side because of the pandemic. You know, we had people on TV yes. yeah, um, yeah. for the briefings and so on. So, yeah, I think this is, uh, I think you know, it'd be interesting to see when we do this again in a year's time, whether Keir Starmer's new shadow cabinet has had a bigger impression than the last one. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. Well, stay there, James, because in a moment we're going to look at, uh, we'll find out what the group thought they would buy Boris Johnson and Keir Starmer for Christmas presents. 
It's very funny. Uh, uh, we'll also get them to sum up uh, the, the party leaders in a word. Uh, you're listening to Matt Chorley on Times Radio, bringing the Times Radio focus group in association with Kex CNC. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with Strive UK from MasterCard. Empowering small businesses for a digital future. Find out more at mastercard.co.uk slash strive. Now, though, let's get back to the red, uh, to the Times Radio focus group. We do it every month. Uh, we convene a panel of swing voters to ask them about what they think is happening in politics in association with the communications firm Kex CNC. James Johnson, former number 10 pollster, uh, is always in the chair asking the questions, and I just uh, watch along for fun. Uh, James, let's turn our attention now to... Um, we've had lots of criticism of Boris Johnson, probably some of the heaviest criticism... Uh, that we've we've had since we've been doing these things, uh, sort of damning by faint praise of Keir Starmer and his top team. So you asked a very straightforward question: Who would be the best prime minister? Definitely Boris. Boris. I, I really couldn't say. Uh, I would. I would say not Boris. Well, I'd take Boris, but I'd, I'd be quite happy if Starmer defected to the Tories. For me, it'd be the devil I know, Boris. Well, we haven't got a lot of choice, have we? <laughs> um, Boris. Boris. Uh, I'd go Boris as well. So, uh, this is the point where lots of people are throwing things at the radio, James, and saying, what, how can this group, which has just said he's had a coronavirus badly, he loses Wayne speeches, he's all over the shop, he doesn't deliver on promises, and yet almost universally they say they'd still opt for Boris Johnson to be Prime Minister. What does that tell us about how politics works and what might the Labour Party be able to do about it? Yeah, so voters are not judging when it comes to their voting decisions or who they'd rather have as Prime Minister. They're not judging in absolute terms. They're not marking Boris Johnson out of 10 uh, and then you know making a decision based on that. It's always relative. It's always a choice. And quite simply, although they don't like Boris Johnson much, they don't much like Keir Starmer either. Um, and for different reasons, we've heard the criticism of Boris Johnson, a sense of lack of professionalism, a sense of lack of action, etc., uh, etc. Et the criticism of Keir Starmer tend to be he's not, not much of a leader, um, nice guy, but not standing out, nothing special, doesn't really do it for me, um, not, no oomph. Um, and quite frankly, they seem to prioritise these voters, um, that charisma, that oomph, that sense of strength, um, over the question of professionalism, um, and that's why ultimately, though they are though they are doubting Boris's uh, strength, they're not doubting it as much as they are Keir Starmer's, and that's ultimately why they are still settling for Boris Johnson over Keir. So, in terms of Labour attacks, you know, you need to find the weakness which voters already agree with. Do they need to present Boris Johnson? I mean, how would you advise them then on on where to... Because they've tried, he's not a bad man, and then they've tried he's a bad man, and they've tried he's corrupt, they've tried he's, you know, making terrible decisions, he's not making decisions. Um, what what do you think is the, the, the line of attack which might actually sort of dent Boris Johnson's armour, if you like? Well, it's about finding the thing that people already view as a weakness, but then it's also about linking that to the thing that matters most to those voters. And we've seen in other polling we've done, we see in these focus groups that it is that sense of strength, decisiveness that really does register on on whether they're going to decide to vote for somebody. So I think they need to really sort of link um, everything that's happened to always back to that sense of direction of whether Boris Johnson really is the person to get things done. Um, but they also, you know, the attack on Boris Johnson is is a necessary but not sufficient condition. They also need to, ch- to change views of Keir Starmer and have him as this sort of person in the driving seat, the person uh, who can get things done, the action man, uh, if you like. Now, he's got some parts of his brand to rest on with that. He's got direct to public prosecutions. When you explore that in detail in focus groups, people do see do see potential positives to that. But really, when voters re-engage and, and they start to look at and think about the next election, they need to see quite a different, almost ballsier Keir Starmer than they see at the moment. Well, we'll see if he can deliver on that. Well, you, you mentioned Action Man. I don't think anybody suggested that as a Christmas present for either of them. But you did ask because <laughs> Christmas is just around the corner. It's our last of the focus groups uh, before uh, the end of the year. Uh, so you asked them, uh, what would they buy the party leaders? Let's, let's start there with Boris Johnson. This is what uh, the Times Radio focus group panel would, would buy Boris Johnson for Christmas. Condoms. A comb. Brush, a A smoking pipe. Actually, I was was thinking what Mike says. (laughs) (laughs) 
like maybe some sort of a personal stylist because he must have enough money for it. Proper haircut. And we'll gloss over condoms, uh, James, and go to uh, maybe combs and haircuts. And that's a, it's amazing how it, even in like a jokey question does sort of zero into. It's basically the sort of give me Boris Johnson in a word. And basically he looks a mess. Uh, he's a bit posh and he needs a lot of condoms. <laughs> I thought we were going to brush over the condoms, Matt. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, no, you're absolutely right, and, and you know, this is where the public are really good at defining these things. It, it slightly reminds me of, um, of of Deborah Mattinson, who is a pollster. She now works in Keir Starmer's office, but um, when she used to work at Britain Thinks, and 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 you know, always used to ask this question of, well, you know, what animal or what car are the voters most like? And it does mean that you can nail sort of what the, what they actually deep down think about these voters, uh, about these politicians, and you saw a bit of that coming through there. Yeah, and I suppose Boris uh, Johnson, I assume, would be happy with any of those. Uh, right, let's uh, let's uh, in the interest of ba- balance and fairness, let's find out what the panel would buy. Keir Starmer, a pal in it, jumper, a memorable cabinet, a penguin joke. <laughs> um, I've not got a clue. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> a brightly coloured shirt to give him a bit of personality. Maybe a new job. Uh, give him a Liverpool football shirt, chairman. I've got feeling somebody else responded to that saying, hasn't he suffered enough already? It's sort of slightly descended into uh, football. So, you know, he's gloomy. He's got a bad cabinet. Um, he's sort of unknowable. They don't know what to buy him. It's again, it sort of gives you an insight into voters' gut reactions when it comes to Keir Starmer. Yeah, they, and, they, and they really want someone who can stand out. I'm sure in a world where Keir Starmer was up against David Cameron and Nick Clegg, it probably wouldn't be as much of a problem for him. But up against Boris Johnson... Um, and in this sort of slightly new politics where getting things done matters more than uh, professionalism. Um, it, 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 they, they, want, they want to see a bit more of a spark from Keir Starmer. Have to, I didn't understand that someone said pe- a penguin joke, I think. I, can't, I, don't, I don't know whether I'm penguin missing Penguin joke. I, I, didn't really really understand, I didn't understand that either. <laughs> um, maybe it's a, a joke in her house. Uh, no, I wasn't quite sure. Uh, but yeah, but a, new, sort of... a new job, though, Matt. I mean, that was particularly damning, a new job. Yes, and I think that I suppose that's the thing is that, and at some points you don't get you know we've talked about this so many times before you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. This sort of uh, um, combination of uh, ineffective, miserable, and nothing that we get from voters when they talk about Keir Starmer, two years in, it's really difficult to reboot that, isn't it? I mean, unless you're going to go sort of full um, George Osborne. Go on the five-two diet, get your hair cut, and you know appear everywhere in high vis. Uh, politicians doing a relaunch mid-term is really difficult. It's really difficult. I think the key thing is that voters do will re-engage when it comes to an election, or even a few months before an election. So Keir Starmer does have another chance with these voters, but even if he can't reboot now, he needs to have sort of the reboot done so that when they do re-engage. It's a very new Keir Starmer looking at them. And there are some signs they are doing that. I mean, there was a, um, a, an interview he did last week um, or earlier this week where you know, he was very punchy. I think he even swore um, and uh, really sort of took the attack to Boris Johnson. And if voters look at that Keir Starmer, they may well change their minds. But you're quite right. Their first impression hasn't been a positive one. That's all we've got time for on today's episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast from. And you can listen via the Times Radio app. Catch me Monday to Friday, 10 to 1, live on Times Radio. And if you want to come on and play the hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10, email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio, and we'll get you on very soon. <laughs>